The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. in New York, and here is your top five at five. The winning streak snapped. How will your money do now coming off the worst week in months? As Goldman Sachs says, expect stocks to fall next year. It's all about inflation, and this week we get the big inflation number and a Fed meeting. We're going to set you up for all of it. COVID's Omicron strain, the same risk as the flu? You may not believe what China's leading health official is saying as that country tries to reopen. Plus, Bank of America is out with its top trades for next year, some calling it the anti-fang. Later on, Microsoft inking a multi-year deal with one of the biggest exchange operators in the world. It is all happening on this Monday, December 12th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I'm a guy named Brian Sullivan. It is great to be back with you here on Worldwide Exchange, at least for this week, and maybe help you kick off your day or end it. If you're one of our friends watching from the other side of the planet, welcome. Good to be here. All right, enough chit-chat. Let's jump right in with your Monday money stock futures. They're looking decent. They're in the green. They're higher. Now, this comes after what was a very rough week for most of the major averages, Snapping a two-week win streak, logging their worst week since late September. Stock futures, though, they are higher right now, Dow 41. Ten-year yield not moving a lot. The benchmark bond yield is at 3.57%. Now, in energy, oil just continues to fall. In fact, <coughs> excuse me, folks, just so you know, I've got a nasty cold. I'm here in my home studio, but I'm going to be here for you. If I cough a little bit, I apologize. All right. In oil, we could break below $70 a barrel today or very soon this despite sky-high demand from India right now. We've got a guest on in a few minutes about why oil keeps falling. In crypto, we are seeing Bitcoin and Ether right now. They're not moving a whole lot. Of course, this whole FTX saga got a long way to go, and we'll see if Bitcoin and other crypto moves. We are seeing Bitcoin at 16,900. Right around the world, red arrows in Asia overnight. Hong Kong falling more than 2%. There you go. A lot of red on the screen there. And trading in Europe. It is just getting underway. Let's see what's happening in the place where probably picked up this cold. Most of the major averages you can see are lower. All right. Much more on the markets and your money in a moment. But first, why don't we get some of your key headlines that are happening right now, including some rather eye-opening comments from China's chief medical officer. Christina Partsenevelis is here with those. Christina, good morning. Hello, Brian. Good morning. So let's start with Amgen, reportedly close to a deal to acquire Horizon Therapeutics for as much as $20 billion. The deal would mark the largest such healthcare transaction since AstraZeneca bought Alexion for $39 billion just last year. The takeover would give Amgen access to Horizon's pipeline of drugs for rare autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. 
Chinese officials continue their zero COVID policy U-turn over the weekend. One of the country's top medical advisors saying the fatality rate from the Omicron variant is in line with the flu, with an infection rarely reaching the lungs. The comments meant to downplay the severity of the virus and support Beijing's recent easing of rules that have hamstrung its economy since the pandemic began just three years ago. And Twitter is launching a revamped version of its premium Twitter Blue subscription service today. Among the perks for subscribers, uh, edible tweets, high-definition video uploads, and a blue checkmark verification. Twitter says the plan will cost about 8 bucks a month when subscribers use it through Twitter directly, but it'll cost $11 a month for those that use it through the Apple's App Store. Twitter initially launched Twitter Blue back in early November, but was forced to shut it down over an explosion of fake accounts and misinformation. And now everyone's going to have a blue checkmark, Brian. Yeah, and I think everybody's been waiting for editable tweets for a long time, Christina, because, you know, you put in like, hey, I like the Chargers tonight, and then you want to go back and say, no, no, I meant the Dolphins. Well, I just wonder, you know, what about you and I? We're, we're journalists, right, or anchors, whatever, so we have blue check marks. Does that mean we have to start paying to get that, too? Because I already have a blue check mark. We're probably, well, then maybe it's on different colors, right? I'll get, like, the gold check mark or oil colored. Who of knows? Course. Christina, we'll, we'll get see the in a few minutes. One. Thank you. For, good <laughs> Monday morning, by the way. Bonjour. All right. All right. Now to the markets. And we lead with a stat that kind of could be like a mini RBI. This is from our friends at LPL Research, and it goes to market valuations. LPL notes that bottoms up estimates for S&P 500 earnings this quarter have dropped by 5.6 percent since late September. All right. What exactly does that mean? Well, LPL says it is the biggest decrease in earnings estimates during the first two months of a quarter since the pandemic first hit, which means stock prices might have to come down as well. Let's try to make sense of it all and get some advice. Delano Sapporo is founder and CEO of New Street Advisors. He may CNBC contributor. Uh, you know, I like these little stats and nuggets. Delano, good morning, by the way. Good to see you. Morning. And thanks for uh, kicking off the week for us. Although I just wonder, are those earnings estimates already built in? Is that what happened to the market last week? Some of that was what happened to the market last week. I think it was also some of what we're seeing uh, in the data on the producer price index showing that, you know, the Fed may be still a little bit more hawkish um, when we get into the the meeting this week. But I think when you look at it, um, prices do still have to come down probably a little bit. You're seeing that companies are obviously still batting with inflation. Um, There might be a deterioration of demand in some sectors and companies, maybe an analyst are, you know, looking at the numbers and we're all saying, are are we sure that we priced everything in yet? Not so sure that that we have. And so if you look at the valuations, especially in the tech sector, they have come down uh, from kind of the crazy valuation in 2021. Uh, but we may ha- still have a little bit more to go, Brian. Yeah, I mean, and, and the numbers are coming down pretty quick, but the market's been, it's been what, a terrible year. I mean, not just for stocks, but for bonds, one of the worst combo years ever yeah. when you look at all asset classes all in. Do you think that, that earnings estimates could get worse from here on out or maybe the the worst for the macro markets has already been priced in. I think, you know, what I'm looking at, I think still in Q1, um, we still have a little bit to go. I think we still could see um, a deterioration. That's why you're seeing that kind of revision down. I think companies in the first, in the quarter three, have all pointed to, you know, the fact that their outlook in the next three to six months could still be a little bit cloudy. Um, I think once you get past that um, and you start looking at what could happen when we see a consumer that has gone through the worst of it and the, the consumer that has gone through a little bit maybe higher unemployment rate and has still been able to potentially keep uh, the personal balance sheet somewhat strong and 
and rebound from that. And then you see demand come back um, because a lot of the policies have been enacted, especially if you look at what's going on in the housing sector, that's still lagging. And some of that stuff still hasn't come through. And I still think we're going to get to that. And to see how we we all react from that will be kind of big, especially when we come to the markets and what, what kind of recovers faster, which I think will probably be crypto and then equities. And then we'll go from there. Obviously, Wall Street strategists, we have them on CNBC all the time. They're our friends. Some of them are even kind of our colleagues, contributors, whatever. So we're not knocking them, Delano, but pretty much every single major Wall Street strategist got this year spectacularly wrong. I think the low estimate on the S&P 500 was 4,700, going up to like 5,300, obviously, unless we get some some insane buying the next two weeks. We're not even going to be close to that. Now we're starting to see 2023 forecasts come in, Delano. Goldman Sachs, they see the stock market declining. We're going to see a lot of negative takes on 2023. How do you kind of read the macro environment right now? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say first, even I I was definitely wrong. You know, when I looked at 2022, I think we'd have, I saw less than double digit gains, but I was around the six or 7% range on the S&P 500. And so, yeah, we've, you know, pretty much from what I've seen, a lot of us have got that wrong. Now, you know, taking a contrarian view, when I look at 2023, I do think the first two quarters, I think will be rough. And now when you see everyone um, kind of a consensus showing, you know, bearish, I I think I kind of like to go the other way in that respect. I think we'll potentially maybe see, we'll definitely see a better year that we did in 2022. Yeah. I do think that after the first half of the year, we'll get to a place where we've seen you know, rates kind of moderate, uh, pause, and then and kind of go down. Um, a consumer that's a little bit stronger and, and earnings that kind of start to, to be go up um, for, for companies. And then we could potentially you know, have a positive year for 2023. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, it feels like there's a decidedly bearish take coming into the first half, at least the first half of the year. We'll see what Wall Street strategists can do in 2023. Hard to believe we're already talking about it, but Delano, we appreciate you getting up early for us, my man. Thank you. Have a great day. We'll see you soon. Take care. You too. All right. We have got a lot to do on this busy Monday. Coming up, a story in energy that could be one of, if not the greatest energy breakthroughs of the modern era. How's that for a tease? Plus, former former Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson is here to talk inflation and rates. Later on, details on what some are calling Bank of America's anti-FANG trade ideas for next year. That is all ahead as WEX rolls on on this Monday. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. 
All right, welcome back. Let's get a quick market flash on Rivian, the electric truck maker. The stock is down this morning in the pre-market, not a lot, a couple percent. But the company says it is pausing its joint venture with Mercedes-Benz to make electric vans in Europe, one that both companies agreed to just three months ago. Rivian says it will instead focus on consumer and existing commercial businesses as it tries to become cash flow positive in the U.S. Rivian stock down about three and a half percent. All right, it is time now, a little bit early, for your morning RBI. Maybe the most random but interesting thing you're going to hear all day, and it follows nicely, I guess, on that Rivian story. You'll find out why in a minute. And today, let's talk about how it is that time of year again, the holidays, the beginning of what I call panic shopping season. But that is not all. It is also the time of year when indexes add new stocks and drop others. And this can often move stocks in either direction. If you're added to an index, stock may go up. If you drop, stock may go down. So if you are going to go shopping for stocks, here are six you may want to look to possibly put under your tree and seven you may want to add to the coal pile because the NASDAQ is making some big changes to its massive NASDAQ 100 index. They are adding six names and they are dropping seven. These changes go into effect ahead of the market open next Monday the 19th. All right, let's go. And let's start with those being tossed from the index out of the NASDAQ 100, they are VeriSign, Chipmaker Skyworks Solutions, Splunk, getting splunked, Baidu, Match Group, which is down 66% this year, and DocuSign, which is also down 66% this year. And the last stock is Netties, kind of a couple of lockdown, previous lockdown favorites in there, uh, along with some other stocks, certainly on the COVID train as well, and some some really tough performers getting kicked out of the index. NASDAQ just saying, basically, uh, get out of there. All right, so now let's go to the six, six stocks, he said, that are being added to the index. All right, here we go. I'm going to read them for you. And that is Global Foundries, GFS, Warner Brothers Discovery, that, of course, the parent company of CNN, CoStar Group, electric truck maker, Rivian. See what we did there? See how it flows? And that's interesting because the last part of these two additions to the NASDAQ 100 are kind of the anti-electric truck play. The NASDAQ also adding two oil and gas names to the index, Baker Hughes and Diamondback Energy. Yes, ticker symbol FANG, the original FANG. They're both oil and gas stocks. And ask yourself, when is the last time you saw an oil and gas stock added to any major index? I mean, I can't think of it in years. They normally get tossed. And right now, there are no oil or gas stocks in the tech-heavy NASDAQ 100, save for a couple of utility names. But maybe their big returns this year and a little bit of renewed investor interest is making them more attractive. Again, oil and gas stocks in an index known for technology. Now, that, I think, is random but interesting. And also, some stocks, certainly to keep an eye on. All right, still on deck. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen talking recession, inflation, and the real Main Street impact of central bank policy then and now. That is when Worldwide Exchange returns. Thousands of people were being laid off, and you tried to remind everybody that, that this is not about statistics. I right? think I said they're people. And I wanted people that worked for me to take seriously the harm and misery that was being experienced by all too many Americans. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back and hope you're having a good start to your Monday. Let's talk oil because really on the surface, nearly everything seems to point toward oil prices going up. China trying to reopen. India buying up everything they can. Russia saying it could cut oil production and even the Keystone Pipeline spill up in Canada. But oddly, prices have not only not gone up, they have fallen by a lot. In fact, oil prices right now at $70.56. They could break below 70 bucks today. This is coming off WTI Brent and WTI crude and Brent falling to their lowest level in a year. Let's find out why exactly and what's going on with Victor Katona. He is lead crude oil analyst at Kipler. Uh, Victor, good to have you on the program as well. I mean, I think you get my point. Every sign seems to point to higher prices, but all they keep doing is going down. Do we have any idea why? Well, yeah, absolutely. It just feels as if the oil markets had the equivalent of a writer's block. Anything that happens, almost every single news that we have is bullish. But there's just no confidence in, 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 in that it actually reflects the market realities. I mean, there are several explanations. The big real explanation is that everyone is afraid of the recession and no one really wants to invest. The second smaller explanation is that we have December and December usually is already the down season of trading. So not that many people want to put their money into a really, really profitable 2020 and mess up their profits, which they have tallied. So those two combined get into a picture where people don't want to get into the markets. Liquidity is really thin. And in the end, a clear bullish signal, such as the the Keystone Pipeline uh, force majeure, which is a big thing. I mean, you have OPEC plus countries, many actually OPEC plus countries whose production is smaller than the actual throughput capacity of that pipeline. We don't actually know when the pipeline is going to come back and there's no actual end result of that happening. It's really, really weird. And basically, this is what happens if the market grows to a really, really thin layer of liquidity, as we have been seeing. Yeah. Yeah. And for our viewers that may not have heard of it, there's a big, big spill in the pipeline, the Keystone. They think Keystone, I thought that didn't happen. That was the Keystone XL. We'll see when this <clears throat> Keystone pipeline, Victor, gets, gets fully much back up and running. Let's talk about India. How, how much oil is India buying right now? It's a lot. I mean, uh, the overall assumption, again, with, with the oil, Russian oil price cap, was that the, the effect would be almost immediate. Something would be felt by the market. Well, one thing that I think many of us, myself included, did not really uh, anticipate is how strong Indian buying of Russian oil would be. Uh, I actually counted the first decade of Russian loadings, the, the, you know, the, the Europe-bound cargoes, and 18 out of 22 cargoes went to India. Almost every single cargo loaded in December is is going towards India from the European ports of Russia. It's huge. 
uh, it's it's so huge that 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 month to month the loading levels are almost double what it what they used to be in in November. Uh, so it's quite big, wow. which also means that the oil price cap on <clears throat> Russia never really had the physical supply disruption effect to it. Uh, so this might be one. Well, kind to be of fair, to be signal. fair, Victor, that price cap that price cap just kicked in. I mean, if there is going to be. True. All the ships that are on the water right now with Russian oil and them going through the Bosphorus or whatever, you know, getting stopped for a bit last week, checking insurance documents. Those ships were probably loaded before the price cap kicked in. So there might be a lag effect there. Russia says it may cut production. But what about China? If China really, quote, reopens, it could still take a while before we see meaningful flows to China. Could it not? It's not going to flip a switch and happen overnight. Absolutely. I mean, from what we have seen so far in terms of buying and and purchasing activity, uh, it's still relatively weak. Uh, With China, you have two problems. The first is that you have an easing of restrictions, which should be a very, very bullish signal. But the market activity is still not yet there. So that's point number one. Point number two, trust is somehow not really the same after October, November, when we had literally the same story. Uh, everyone was anticipating easing restrictions and then bam, you have an all time high in, in, in COVID cases and lockdowns. So the market doesn't really want to trust uh, China that much right now. It wants to wait out what happens, see if cases go down, see if the actual easing of restriction doesn't lead to another catastrophe in terms of uh, daily cases. And then once it's already in the clear, once there's confidence that this is this will actually happen, only then will, will, it, will it react. Right now, yeah. there's just no trust. That's it. Lack of trust. And who can blame them, by the way? So many starts yeah. and stops there. In China, Victor Katona of Kipler. Really appreciate the, the fascinating insight. You guys do great work. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Victor. Thank you. Thank All you right. for having me. So, speaking of energy, a potentially massive story in energy to report today. Financial Times reporting that American scientists have potentially made one of, if not the, greatest energy breakthroughs of modern times. The creation of so-called fusion power. That is effectively creating power from other power, in this case, a laser And that power is greater than the amount of energy required to make it, a so-called net gain. Now, in an incredibly simplistic sense, because we do not pretend to be experts on this incredibly complicated topic, it would create kind of a man-made sun power, and it would be a big deal. Man-made fusion has been called the holy grail of clean energy. It is carbon emission-free, and it is effectively limitless. Now, It's not hyperbole to say if this works, it could ultimately change the way we power the entire planet, not for a while, but a long way down the road. In fact, a former Department of Energy official texted me last night and said, if this experiment and this news works as is being reported, it could, again, a long way down the road, effectively end almost all the current major electrical generating power sources, gas, coal wind, solar, all gone. Fusion would replace all of that and be carbon-free. Now, it's a reason to hope, but there is still a lot we do not know. The Department of Energy will hold a press event on this tomorrow, Tuesday, at the Lawrence Livermore Lab in California, where they found this. And also keep this in mind, that fusion power like this has been the dream of energy scientists for decades, and it's been the subject to a lot of debate about its viability. Still, 
This is a fascinating story, and we are going to bring you more as we learn it. If it works, it could literally change mankind. All right, straight ahead. Former vice chair of the Fed, Roger Ferguson, is here reading the tea leaves ahead of a busy week and an interest rate call for the Federal Reserve. And just a reminder, if you haven't already, I mean, it's been like five years. What are you waiting for? Follow our podcast. If you miss Mex any day, you can redo it. Listen to it five times a day if you want. We don't care what you do. We're back right after this. Today's big number, 11%. That's the share of all single-family home construction that's built exclusively for the rental market, according to the National Association of Home Builders. That's nearly four times the average over the past few decades. Inflation in the Federal Reserve topping investors' minds. Former Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson lays out what the Fed is likely to do at its big meeting this week. Here we go again. Countdown to a potential shutdown. Congress facing yet another deadline to get a deal to fund the federal government. Done. And Janet Yellen talks recession risk. The Treasury Secretary and the prospects for the American economy coming to a halt next year as the trillions in COVID stimulus finally begins to wear off. It is Monday, December 12th, and this is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. All right, welcome or welcome back, everybody. Good Monday morning. I am back. My name is Brian Sullivan. Good to, good to be here with you and good to get up. All right. Thank you very much for joining us on this very busy Monday. Let's get right now to see how the markets and your money are shaping up, coming off what was another pretty lousy week last week, and that is futures right now. They are, eh, let's call them mixed to maybe slightly higher as well. We're not seeing a huge move there in the futures. We've got the Fed meeting, folks, this week and an interest rate decision, and that is going to determine where everything really goes. Now, let's talk about market setups because we're starting to get all these research notes about what's going to happen or what's likely to happen next year, you know, price targets, things like that. And we got a big one from Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs and the team led by David Costin coming out in a note and saying, quote, next year, We expect that zero earnings growth will result in zero appreciation for the S&P 500. And they continue based on our conversations with clients in recent weeks. Most investors have a more bearish equity market outlook than we do. Yikes. So Goldman Sachs calling for zero appreciation for the S&P 500 next year. Now, in the meantime, Bank of America getting actionable. They list their top trend trades for next year. Now, among the key strategies for that, the one that caught our eye is number eight on B of A's list, and that is to short, in other words, bet against U.S. technology stocks. They say the sector is simply still over-owned, and the era of quantitative easing and globalization is well behind us. B of A adding peak penetration and regulation risks are also worrying, so... B of A and Goldman on the tape, one saying short tech, the other one saying don't see any appreciation for the market next year. Got a number more strategist notes to come out. And of course, this year, pretty much everybody was wrong, but the mood appears to be very downbeat going into next year. All right, let's get a check on some of this morning's top stories outside of the market or maybe in it. 
Christina Parsonevels is back with us. Christina. Hi, Brian. So let's talk about shares of the London Stock Exchange popping right now in overseas trading. Microsoft announcing it's taking a nearly 4% stake in the exchange operator and a 10-year partnership. The pair announcing their partnership will involve next-generation data and analytics as well as cloud infrastructure solutions. Jewel Labs has agreed to get a broad legal settlement covering more than 5,000 lawsuits, according to several reports. The e-cigarette maker will pay up to $1.7 billion over accusations. The company of targeted or is targeting underage users with its marketing and sales tactics. The settlement will resolve much of the legal liability that had pushed Jewel to the brink of bankruptcy. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is forecasting a significant drop in inflation by the end of next year. Yellen offering that outlook in an interview last night ahead of tomorrow's CPI report. Despite that forecast, Yellen also noted the continued risk of a recession. There are always risks of a recession. The economy remains prone to shocks. Um, But look, we have a very healthy banking system. We have very healthy business and household so you don't, sector. You have said this. You do not believe there will be a recession next year. There's a risk of recession, but um, it certainly isn't, in my view, something that is necessary to bring inflation down. Economic growth is, quote, slowing substantially after a stretch of substantial growth after the worst in the pandemic. So some positive, some negative. Everybody's guessing right now, right? It's just, no, it's just, Christy, it's just classic yelling, right? <laughs> we could get a recession. We may not, but if we did, we could have one. But maybe there's a chance we might not have one. If we did have one, it wouldn't be good. But I don't think we might not have one. You said it well. Did I sum it up? Yeah, perfectly. That's it. I couldn't do that again if I tried. But <laughs> there you go, Christina. Thank you very much. Thank you. We said it. Cough. All right. You're welcome. Sticking with the economy in a very busy week ahead for central bankers and investors alike when the Fed kicks things off on Wednesday with its final policy decision of the year and Wall Street putting the odds of a half a percent, a.k.a. 50 basis point rate hike at 75 percent. Got that? A 50 50 75 percent chance we get a half a percent with a smaller chance we get a three fourths of one percent hike as well on Thursday. Europe follows things up. you got the U.K.'s interest rate decision at 7 a.m. Eastern, an ECB decision shortly thereafter. Joining us now is former Fed Vice Chairman and CNBC contributor Roger Ferguson. Roger, great to have you back on. Thanks for getting up early. We certainly appreciate it. What is your view and expectation from your friends at the Fed on Wednesday? Uh, I think the market has it right that they are likely to tighten by another 50 basis points. You know, I think the real news is going to be uh, the so-called uh, dot plot, the, the uh, <clears throat> summary of economic projections. And there the question is going to be, well, what do they now think the terminal rate will be? And what does that imply about the next few meetings? It's early, and a lot of our viewers may have heard the term terminal rate being bandied about out there. Can you explain in layman's terms, Roger, what is it and why do we care about it? Yes. So the terminal rate is the Fed's current expectation of how high it has to lift rates in order to uh, see the kind of uh, inflation coming under control that they're looking for. Uh, And so the thinking right now, the last time the Fed, most of them thought the terminal rate, you know, how high they'd have to go would be somewhere around, you know, slightly above 4 percent. I think after that discussion, uh, Chair Powell talked about maybe having to tighten rates just a little bit higher than that. 
And so now the question is, well, are they thinking maybe they'd have to take their rate up to around 5 percent? And some in the markets think five and a quarter. And I've heard people uh, express the possibility might be higher. So the whole point about the so-called terminal rate is how many more uh, tightenings do they have to do over the next two to three meetings? And that is very important to the market. What's what's potentially more important, Roger? Is it ultimately that that terminal rate or is it how long we stay at some of those rates before they start to come down again? Is it is it amount or duration? Well, uh, obviously, both are important. At this stage, I think it's probably a bit more duration. That seems to be the place where the market and the Fed may be at odds. The market thinks um, that the Fed is going to be cutting rates uh, by the end of next year. And the Fed itself, uh, at least thus far, has not signaled that. And so I think that's going to be a place where the disconnect between the market and the Fed might be most important. And that might really influence how equity markets perform next year once we get an understanding of how long the Fed is going to keep rates uh, at this, uh, relatively speaking, elevated level. Do you think... We'll get a, a recession in the American economy next year, Roger? I do. Um, I've said that uh, for several months, I think, or starting back in March or April. I think recession is you know, practically in- inevitable. I think the issue is going to be, you know, one hopes it will be relatively short and shallow. And in that sense, you know, that's, that could be uh, conceived, relatively speaking, as a good outcome. Um, so I think, for me, recession far more likely than not, and I'm thinking uh, short and shallow. You know, should that 2% inflation target be rethought, Roger? I mean, wage inflation has got to be sticky. I mean, once you give people pay increases or hire them at a certain wage, it's very unlikely you're going to reduce that pay, at least in the near term, unless, unless, you, unless you want them to leave. How do we – that's got to be playing a huge role in the economy – and the overall number, how do you fight that with an interest rate increase? Well, you know, what the Fed is saying is that what they hope to do is to cool the labor market by reducing the number of job openings uh, for every unemployed person. Uh, and they're hoping by doing that that they can avoid um, a hard landing. Yeah, I think to answer your first question, it would be unwise now to change the 2% inflation target. Uh, I think the Fed's credibility would be at stake. And frankly, it would be confusion. So, you know, if it's not a 2% target, what is the target? And once you change it once, how do I know you're not going to change it again? And that risks having inflation expectations, which are very important, becoming uh, unanchored, as it's, as it's called. So I think it would be unwise to change the 2% target at this stage. Let's see how close they can get back to 2%. Um, and then we'll see what happens after that. But Changing the 2% target now, I think, would really just undercut the Fed's credibility and increase the amount of confusion about where it is the Fed wants to take us. Yeah, <clears throat> fair enough. You don't, you don't change the game, per, per se, in the middle of it, but uh, you, do, you wonder about wages. We'll see what happens. Roger Ferguson, really value your insight, and thank you for getting up for us here on WEX on this Monday. Have a great day and a good week, Roger. Thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up. Countdown to a potential shutdown. Elon Moy standing by with the latest on some kind of a deal to keep your government funded and the hurdles keeping lawmakers from reaching a deal. If you feel like you've heard this story before, you have. The Worldwide Exchange is back in a moment. 
All right, welcome back. Let's take a quick check on the Asia markets. And we're showing it to you only because the Hong Kong market took a big hit overnight, down 2%. The headlines say on inflation fears, recession risk. We'll see either way the Hang Seng, which, by the way, has bounced nicely off its November lows, still well down on the year and falling another 2% overnight. All the talk about whether or not China will, quote, reopen, that is dominating the discussion there. We'll see the global economy, certainly. We'll see. All right. From Asia to Washington and the latest out of D.C. and the race by Congress to once again strike a deal to keep the federal government funded and operating. Congressional leaders set to return to the Capitol today, hoping to reach a deal on a full year spending bill before Friday's deadline. However, key divisions, they do remain. And how can we expect not? Elon Moy joining us now with the very latest. All right, Elon. What are the major sticking points that they are going to try to hammer out? Yeah, Brian, well, lawmakers are still trying to pass that sweeping government spending bill during this lame duck session of Congress. Republicans and Democrats have been at loggerheads over how much to spend on non-defense discretionary items. The total is expected to top $1.5 trillion. And as of the end of last week, the two sides were still roughly $25 billion apart. But a Senate Democratic aide told me last night that progress was made over the weekend and that the senator leading these talks, Patrick Leahy of Vermont, is holding off on releasing his own version of a spending bill today in hopes of reaching a bipartisan deal. One of those sticking points has been the law that Democrats passed over the summer, the Inflation Reduction Act. Republicans argue the Democrats already got money for priorities like clean energy and health care. Democrats say that law is fully paid for and shouldn't count against a more comprehensive bill. Meanwhile, the White House has weighed in as well. It's looking for $9 billion in funding for COVID relief, $38 billion for Ukraine. President Biden spoke with President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine last night, and he reaffirmed the U.S. commitment to providing security and economic and humanitarian assistance. So, Brian, this is the make-or-break week because the government currently runs out of money at midnight on Friday Neither side wants a shutdown, but there's no solution just yet. All right. So dare I ask what happens if they do not reach a deal and what are the options for averting a shutdown if even if they can't come to a deal? Yeah, so Republicans and Democrats are floating a couple of different ideas. The problem is they are different ideas. Democrats say if this big omnibus spending bill falls through, that they will introduce a one-year continuing resolution that lasts through the end of fiscal 2023. It would keep government spending levels flat. Republicans say that's a bad idea, would hurt the military. It's never been done before. Instead, they want to see a short-term funding measure that would last through the beginning of 2023, when, of course, Republicans take control of the House and therefore presumably have more leverage in negotiations. So even as we see the talks over this bigger spending bill go on, we're also seeing some side negotiations over what the plan B should be. Brian, there's also a plan C wrapped up in all of this as well, which is if no one can reach any sort of deal by the end of the week, perhaps there could be a one week very short stopgap spending measure that goes through Christmas and gives lawmakers a little more time to untangle the mess. Maybe there's a plan D because that's probably the grade that most Americans <laughs> might give their Congress over the handling of this issue. Elon, I have a feeling, a sneaking suspicion. We will see more of you on this topic today and 
likely probably all the way up through Friday. Elon, thank you very much. All right, on deck, everyone gearing up for a big week. You got the inflation data coming out. You got the Federal Reserve rate call on Wednesday. Sam Stovall is ahead. He'll lay out what's really key to him on this busy week. Dow Futures up a touch. We're glad you're up with us, and we're back right after this. Welcome or welcome back. We're going to debut a new segment on this show right now, today. I don't feel worthy, but let's do it. We're going to call it the WEX Wrap-Up. It is six stories you may have missed as we near the six o'clock top five at five, six at six. See what we're doing there? All right. Shares of Rivian falling on the news. The company will pause its joint venture with Mercedes to make electric vans in Europe. Rivian says it will instead focus on consumer and existing commercial businesses. Twitter is launching a revamped version of its premium Twitter Blue subscription service today. Among the perks for subscribers, editable tweets and a blue checkmark verification. Amgen is reportedly close to a deal to acquire Horizon Therapeutics for as much as $20 billion. Any takeover would give Amgen access to Horizon's pipeline of drugs for rare autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. National Pension Service of South Korea shaking up its holdings, exiting its investment in Carnival and increasing its stakes in Snap, Warner Brothers Discovery, and Baker Hughes. By the way, Warner Brothers and Baker Hughes being added to the NASDAQ 100. And Toyota reportedly set to outline adjustments for its EV strategy to suppliers. And according to Reuters, the automaker will offer the insight to its three-year plan sometime early next year. And story number six and potentially the world's oldest pair of jeans, selling for $114,000 at auction. The denim was pulled from an 1857 shipwreck off the coast of North Carolina. All right, you ready? Because we are. We're gearing up for a busy trading week ahead. Today we get earnings from Oracle as well as Coupa Software. Tomorrow, look for the OPEC monthly oil report and the November Consumer Price Index. That CPI number is going to be huge. House Financial Service Committee also holding a hearing on the collapse of FTX with founder Sam Bankman-Fried scheduled to testify, likely remotely, but we'll see. On Wednesday, the Fed delivers its final rate decision of the year, followed by Jay Powell's news conference. And on Thursday, November retail sales numbers are out. and We get the latest on rate calls from both the Bank of England and the European Central Bank. And then we're not done on Friday. <clears throat> there is a bankruptcy court hearing for FTX. Congress faces that deadline to pass a spending bill to fund the government, and the SEC will vote on sweeping sets of changes to market structure. Maybe we should all just go back to bed. That sounds like a big week. All right, so who better to help us parse through it all than our friend Sam Stovall, Chief Investment Strategist at CFRA. Sam, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted anyway, but I'm exhausted just going through that week. It's almost like too much. What are you most focused on? Well, I think it's no surprise to say I'm most focused on the uh, Fed meeting on Wednesday, but uh, a precursor to that being Tuesday's CPI data. So, you know, I think everybody pretty much knows that the Fed will be raising rates by 50 basis points. And at the same time, ECB and the Bank of England will be raising rates by possibly a similar amount. What is unknown is what kind of tone will be taken with the Fed statement combined with the press conference from Chair Powell. Um, on the day 
of the press conference, the market has risen an average of 3% uh, in that single day. So we could get a big surprise again this week as well. What would the surprises look like? In other words, we go 75 basis points, three quarters of a percent, you know, and no indication of a slowdown in markets tank, like lay out the scenarios. Well, right now, we, uh, when we look at last week, we had all sizes, all styles, all sectors in the S&P 1500 in negative territory, along with 96% of the near 150 sub-industries. So you have a lot of people who are just bailing out in anticipation of this meeting. So I think a lot of negative news has already built in. Uh, if the Fed comes out and pretty much tells us what we already know, I think investors will breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, I think that we're going to get dot plots that uh, come up to about the 5% terminal rate from the lower middling 4% area. So that's probably not going to be a surprise either. Um, I, I think that if we get some sort of statements that imply that, yes, a recession is around the corner and we don't really care how deep it's going to be, we're going to bring inflation down to 2%, uh, that could end up uh, causing much more concern than anticipated. Does the Tuesday CPI number matter, or do you think the Federal Reserve has already made up its mind? Well, certainly last week's PPI number mattered. Uh, so I think that uh, the CPI number will matter to investors. It probably won't matter to uh, the Fed uh, voting members as they probably had advance notice of that information. Also, they're looking at forward data. Uh, our expectation is that they'll raise by 50 basis points in February, another 25 in March, and then hit the pause button for at least six months before thinking about, let alone communicating, the potential for the start of, an, of a rate easing process. You're, you're kind of singing to me here, Sam, because did you just <laughs> say that we might we might have a Federal Reserve that kind of goes off the radar for half a year. I mean, is this Christmas come early? That's right. Well, you're tired. You're exhausted. I'm singing to you. You'll fall asleep before the show is over. Uh, but could be a lullaby, if you will, from the Fed uh, saying we've done our job. We don't want to overdo it because basically the target we're aiming at is on the other side of the horizon. So we don't want to overdo it. Uh, so I think that the Fed will uh, press the pause button after the March rate tightening uh, and take a wait and see attitude. Why does it seem like everybody's so doggone negative for next year? We're starting to see some of the, uh, you know, your, your competitors and others are rolling out their forecasts. And by the way, if you've got one, let us know. But I haven't seen anybody bullish next year. Well, our target is 4575, which is a 16 percent advance from where we are today. Uh, I come up with that number based on technicals as well as the cap weighted target price differential by CFRA equity analysts. And obviously we cover all the stocks in the S&P 500. Uh, and our belief is, you know, a lot of people are simply forecasting recency. Uh, we are down by double digits so far this year and only twice in two bear markets since World War II did we have that second year, that being 2000 uh, as well as 2001. Uh, and then in 1973-74, so basically the market rises an average of 70% of the time the year after a double digit decline and is up an average of eight and a half percent. And too many people are forecasting recency and basically saying next year will be the same as this year. It will only if we end up yeah. falling into a meltdown bear market. 
Well, that may be the the most bullish forecast I have heard, at least for next year. And it's good to hear at least somebody out there being bullish, always bringing the heat and the historical context. Sam Stovall, real pleasure to get you on, my friend. Thank you for getting up early for us. Have a great day. Thanks. All right, folks, good to be back with you here on Worldwide Exchange. I will be back as well tomorrow and the rest of the week, so be sure to tune in. I'll try to cough less and smile more. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange for a Monday. We'll see you tomorrow. Squawk of the Gang, picking up your coverage next. Have a great day. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.